Welcome and happy Friday. It's Travelog, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. Um, we are here in the Condé Nast Podcast Studios. I'm with Meredith Carey and Sebastian Modak right here. They are editors for Condé Nast Traveler, and they are here in the studio with me, and this is an international cast. We have folks calling from around the world. We've got our friend Mark Elwood, who's a contributing editor for Traveler and a podcast producer. And Mark, where are you right now? I'm in London. You're in London. So I'm basically back in my spiritual home, even if I sound super American to most people here. You are fickle. When you are in the United <laughs> States, you claim to be American X, like you left London behind. When you're in London, you're, that's your spiritual home. I sound like Madonna to most British people. That's how British I sound. <laughs> See what I'm saying? And we have a very special guest, Andy Steves, who is coming to us from Budapest. Is that right, Andy? That's right, guys. Siastok, as they say here. That's uh, hello. And uh, I'm so excited to be meeting you guys. And thanks for having me on the show. Well, thank you for joining us. My name is Brad Rickman. And we're going to get right into it. We have a topic this week that is kind of near and dear to all of our hearts in one way or another. And that topic is guidebooks. And we're asking the question. <laughs> Meredith always sets up the podcast with a question. And the question that she set up this week, does anybody use them anymore? <laughs> that's just like the exact tone that's what that she... I would like to pose this question <laughs> with. Exasperation. Ex ex <laughs> Confusion. Are these things still relevant? Yeah. <laughs> Books? What? What? <laughs> what are those? They have words. And just everybody's pedigree here. Andy, I think you can claim the biggest pedigree, so to speak, for both yourself and for your family. Um, you come from a long line of guidebook producers, <laughs> <laughs> or at least one of the most significant lines in American history. Your father's Rick Steves, author of the Rick Steves Europe and television personality, very well known in this field. And you yourself have gone into the family business. And we can talk about that a little bit. But you're not the only one. Our friend Mark has a history with guidebooks as well. Now, of course, he works for us now. He writes for the magazine and he writes for the website quite a bit um, and does the podcast. But Mark, you started out as a youngster in uh, the guidebook business as well, right? As, as, as I think back, yes, I have to say my first journalism job was writing the Rough Guide to New Jersey, Pennsylvania and upstate New York. Thank you, Martin Dunford, for taking uh, a punt on me. Wow, that, that'd that be a stretch. That, that you, I'm sure you'd find some interesting material there. Yeah. <laughs> it was fascinating. And the thing is, I went on to look after Chicago, San Francisco, Northern California, South Florida, Miami, Florida Keys, New York. And so I really, I spent several years deep in the trenches of checking that phone numbers and websites were right. And I took great pride in checking every single one because not everybody does. I feel like mm -hmm. there's there's competition going on. You were trying to throw down a lot of guidebooks <laughs> that you saw because you got Andy on the other line. Andy. Oh, he's royal. Andy, I'm going to give you a I chance just, to I was respond. A hard man. I'm going to give you a chance to respond. Did you go right into guidebooks? or I feel like this is a, a slightly recent thing, but you've been doing other things in the travel world for a good long while. That's right, Brad. Thanks for bringing me in. So um, I started my company, Weekend Student Adventures, back in 2010 after a lifetime of being dragged around Europe with a travel writing, you know, father, Rick Steves. And, you know, as we were growing up, my mom, my dear sister and myself, we were treated as guinea pigs to test out, hey, is this a good restaurant? Is this a family friendly hotel? What's it like driving on the left side of uh, the road there in far flung England, for example? And I really wanted to push my boundaries a little bit and I was thinking to do something completely different from tourism when I graduated from university, but the opportunity for a tour company for students abroad in Europe just couldn't be ignored. And 
from there, I've just compiled my notes over the years and drawn from all sorts of incredible local connections and knowledge and just funneled them into a guidebook that came out last year. So I kind of want to get right into it and ask, <laughs> so now you've moved into guidebooks for this demographic, you know, the young, the people who are looking for that affordable trip through Europe, that 20-something audience, the sort of millennial audience, aren't those the, like the last people who would use a guidebook in the conventional yeah, sense I mean, of thinking? Yeah, I mean, like, newspapers are dying, right? right. And people are getting their news. Or, <laughs> well, mm-hmm. I mean, they're... they're Conventional newspaper newspapers sure. are dying, and and people are getting their news, their information from Twitter, from Facebook. They're getting their travel recommendations from Instagram. From podcasts. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Internal no, I think, plug. I think that's a very relevant conversation and a great question. Um, the pursuit of good travel is all about. It starts at the beginning. When you're thinking about beginning to research a new destination that you're going to go to, cast your net as wide as possible. Of course, ask your friends, ask the experts, you know, and um, maybe ask Jeeves or no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> ask Google. And, and of course, you're going to. You're not old enough to remember <laughs> Ask Jeeves. <laughs> um, you know, ask Google, ask TripAdvisor, ask Yelp. And those are great places to begin your search. But, you know, you've got to remember that guidebooks come with the experts. Expertise, just you know, just like um, Mark there, he traveled up and down the East Coast researching and calling all these different numbers and making sure that the contact information and the addresses were right. There's something to be said for that. And when you bring an expert into the picture who then puts down all their their knowledge or local connections or lessons that they learned over the years, I think there's still definitely value in that. And so I kind of look at at it like a three-legged stool. You know, you can definitely use another tool, but don't forget the guidebooks either. I want to ask a question because both Seb and Mary, you guys are both in that demographic, Andy's target demographic. And also I think we can look into this a little bit more. Mark and I can talk about this, (laughs) about how the older folk used uh, guidebooks. (laughs) But I'm curious, do you guys use them? I think in our, yeah, and in our at least preliminary conversations, we both use them in very different ways, which kind of shows you can't peg the guidebook to generational use. It's so individual. You, you right. can tell, yeah. you can say so, how you use it first. So yeah. I use guidebooks mostly two ways. I use them primarily as a scrapbook. So when I am in a place, I use my guidebook to write in. I use it as my journal. I circle places. I write in places that I went that maybe aren't in the guidebook. And it's kind of like my physical diary of my trip just because, you know, I'm going to have photos and things like that. But If I'm going to be carrying around my guidebook anyway, I don't need another travel journal. Um, And when I travel, I try to always journal. So it kind of provides this, like, already pre-packaged travel Mm -hmm. information. And you can... You can cross out the stuff that doesn't sound interesting to you. Right. You can write in the margins, just like you said. I can't imagine, you know, I have cousins in California and their whole education budget went to buying iPads, you know, and like, how the heck do you learn from a digital screen when, I don't know, maybe I'm dating myself, but, you know, <laughs> remember textbooks yeah. and you used to be able to take notes and, and highlight what's important to you and what you got to remember. So I see guidebooks in, in much the same way. I think it's, for me at least, they have kind of like an almost sentimental, nostalgic value to them in that definitely not to the extent that you did, Andy, but I feel like I was like brought up Mm -hmm. by guidebooks almost because I, you know, my family traveled so much and there was always the guidebook for every vacation. And my mother would like very embarrassingly read out loud from the guidebook about some church in France that we were standing in or some temple in India. And we'd always be like, mom, please stop. (laughs) Um, But like now those are like memories that I look back on and they're fond memories. And now I feel like, Kind of how 
it's almost the opposite to what you were saying, Andy. Like the first stop is Google or TripAdvisor or whatever else. For me, the first stop is sometimes the guidebook where I'll like kind of go through it maybe weeks, months before I'm going on a trip, take out the things that I really like, write them down, things that seem appealing to me, and then use those as kind of my anchor to then explore further. So it's the beginning of your engagement with the place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and also, you know, also... My father always said to me, never trust anyone when you walk into their house and there are no bookshelves. And to me, you know, on those bookshelves, one of the first things I look for is that little guidebook corner. All mine are arranged by like the order I went in and then the little ones are piled up together. And I look at them and they are a moment of everything floods back the minute you see those guidebooks. And there is something very keepsakey about them. And I'm like Meredith, I don't look after them. I scribble all over them because that's the point. You've personalised them. And sometimes you want to pass it on and be like, this isn't just a guidebook. It's sort of my version of the guidebook. And, you know, even having written them, you want people to respond to them and say, I don't agree. That's great. And something that Andy and I actually talked about a couple months ago when we spoke was that your guidebook is never going to die. Like I use a Kindle and, you know, it lasts for a while, but... It doesn't like last forever, and so your guidebook will always be there. Even you mean when like you the have, battery like, will no, never yeah, die? No, yeah, like you, you know, your Wi-Fi is never going to go out. Right, you're going to like actually have access yeah. to it. And and think about it. Travel is like a 24 hour a day experience, and you're going to leave to the airport at awkward times. You're going to arrive late at night. You're going to be on a bus, and there's not going to be uh, plugging stations or charging stations. And so having something tangible that you can work off of, reference, and point to to somebody who doesn't speak your language but you can say hey i gotta go to this street that i have no idea how to pronounce they can walk you down to the corner and say yeah it's that way you know in in their language and there's definitely something value in that when you're you know in a new city that you just can't relate you have no idea where you are mark maybe we could talk for a minute i think it's worth paying just a moment's notice to kind of the legacy of guidebooks because there are pieces of that culture that are still with us in profound ways today that I don't think people think about. The Michelin Guides, for example. But when you got into the business, I think it's fair to say, at least for me when I was that age, it felt like an almost uh, literary history of engagement with places. What was it like for you back then as, as a, both a traveler and a writer? Do you know, it was interesting because I started in travel being a tour guide in Europe. I took Americans and art tours around Europe. And so I was already full of, I was already a know-it-all who did a lot of studying up, but I wanted to get, write it down and get paid a bit more for it. And what I would always do, you know, when I, when I, when I was handed Miami to take over, I went down for three months and I lived in Miami and I hopscotched between hotels. And I literally went to every tourist attraction. I inspected every room and it was journalism boot camp. It It was kind of, it was an immersive experience because I really, to this day, I write about Miami all the time and I really do get that city. I know it's a bit of an awkward teenager and it sort of doesn't quite know what what looks good on it, but it's trying. And, you know, that time, getting to spend three months in a place, I did the same thing in San Francisco. I'd lived in Chicago, so I did that, you know, that. It really gives you a deep understanding of a place that's easy to assume is easily acquired. And, you know, I've been to the Coral Castle, you know, in South Miami. I've seen every cheap hotel room and I can tell you which one is okay and which one I wouldn't put a sleeping bag down in, let alone sleep in the bed. Weirdly enough, I feel like guidebooks actually make me more spontaneous a traveler. I try to plan like maybe a third of my vacation and then just kind of like go and hope it all works out. And when I have a guidebook with me, 
even if I haven't even opened it until I like get on the ground, like knowing that in case of emergency, if I need to walk into somewhere and get a room, like I'm going to have four options of non-crappy places I know someone has stayed at that like I'm not going to die in. Mm-hmm. It's great. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a safety net that way. <laughs> right, exactly. But I have to ask, is anyone else, I must admit, I feel guidebook shame. I always feel that it's a bit like reading porn on public transport. You sort of want to d- <laughs> open, go into your bag. Do and you sort of see people oh, who read porn on the subway? That happened yes! on my morning commute oh yesterday. Oh my God. 7.30 a.m. Or people who watch porn on their phone. Oh, my point no. is, but my thing is, I always feel when I have a guidebook, I want to open it in my bag so that no one can see I need a guidebook. There's a bit of guidebook shame mm-hmm. that you don't get from your phone. And I, I almost want to sort of carry a fake outside to the book that's like, you know, some kind of highbrow, Jonathan Franzen. And I want to fold that around my <laughs> wallpaper guide so everyone thinks I just have a pocket Franzen with me. It's like the, the socks and sandals effect or something. Something, you know, just like, oh, there that's the, there's the tourist, you know. Yeah, um, exactly. That's, that's, that's the one identifier. It definitely, as soon as you whip out a guidebook on a street corner, I mean, that's that's when the pickpockets see it. That's right. when locals know, like, oh. But I think for the vast majority of Americans, people can identify you visually either way. Maybe you know, maybe you have a better chance of uh, blending in a little bit, Mark. But uh, but for us Americans with our our North faces and our tennis shoes <laughs> and our bright white teeth, you know, um, th- these are things that make us stand out more than a guidebook will, and that just kind of solidifies that. Maybe going back to what Meredith was saying about how, for her at least, guidebooks they kind of give the foundation and then kind of unlock the spontaneity of travel. How do you strike that balance of encouraging people to go beyond what they're reading, use it as that safety net, and not just be like, okay, so it says I should go to one of these five restaurants. I guess I should go to one of these five restaurants. And only one of these Yeah, five I'm here for five nights. I'll go to one every night, you know? How do you keep that curiosity, that kind of magic of wanderlust that is so important in travel while also giving people the right level of guidance? I'll jump in on Mark. Um, Meredith, you make a great point, and it's really up to the traveler to decide, okay, how much do I want to plan so that I don't have to stress out about what I'm going to be doing tomorrow and three days from now and next week and using up valuable vacation and travel time planning while you go versus sacrificing that flexibility. Maybe you meet somebody cool um, on the road. You have a connection with somebody and you want to make a, a detour and you keep your ears open to hear about, okay, what's the, you know, the backpacking circuit, for example, in Western Europe is really well established. You know, it's, of course, London, Paris, Amsterdam, Berlin, Prague, dropping down to Italy, continuing over to Spain. That's nothing new, but you're absolutely right. It's so important to try at least to get off the beaten path. And in my approach, what I try to do is front load that information into kind of the intro of my guidebook, at least. I make really clear, like, look, guys, I'm trying to focus on cool, trendy hotels, restaurants, hostels, Airbnbs, nightlife, and so on. And my dad actually made a point uh, a couple months ago when I was chatting to him. He was like, yeah, you have it tough. I focus on the places that have been here for 50, 70 years, (laughs) you know, the classic restaurants in Paris or um, the the sites that are just not going to go anywhere. Meanwhile, I'm focusing on art galleries and cool ruined pubs here in Budapest, uh, things that open and close frequently. So besides the specific recommendations, you also got to try to educate your readers about bringing that right mindset to 
be able to identify themselves what's important, what's exciting on the road and how to how to get off the beaten path on their own. Um, one lesson I always share is if you see a menu in 10 different languages with bright lights and pictures of the food on the menus, guess what? That's going to be a restaurant that caters to tourists. Mm-hmm. Try to go down a safe looking side street and around a safe looking corner to find those <laughs> mom and pop shops that they might not speak your language. They might not have a menu written out. You know, that's a great find uh, along the way. So, but, but can I say, I was going to say, I think we should all fess up about this. One of the biggest problems with guidebooks, and this is something that I think no one has yet solved, is exactly what Andy was just talking about, which is turnaround time. The rule when I worked for the Rough Guides, which was ended about 10 years ago, so I have to say, I don't know what it's like now. If anyone from the Rough Guides is listening, please tell me, was that effectively a year on from the date you deliver text, that book would appear on the shelves. That's just too long. And... Whenever I use guidebooks, the first thing I do is I turn to see when they were published. Because often the cycle might even be five years, six years. If I'm looking at a guidebook that was written six years ago, I'm sure technically the subway map is the same, but even that might not be the same. You need to know it was published last year. And it's things like Superfuture, which I really love for places like Tokyo, are digital PDFs that they upgrade every three months. And so you have a really, really up-to-date update that you then print out. And I would remind people, don't buy a guidebook that's two or three years old because you'll do just as well. It's really, really out of date. Yeah, because I mean, not, not only might a place be closed, but you might, there might have been a restaurant that was just a sudden discovery for that guidebook two years ago. And now it's become one of those places with 14 languages and photos of the food on it. You know, it's tough. There's that trusted utility of the guidebook that we all want, but then there's the how do you keep pace with when everything else is digital. Well, there should be live updating. What we tried to propose the Rough Guides was that every author who was contracted to look after an area, the contract also required regular digital updates, which would mean there would be a sort of living, breathing area that you could cross-reference with. But unfortunately, budgets are tight, and that costs money. And the other thing is that guidebooks don't make money. So you've got to do it for the love of it. One of the reasons they're contracting so much and one of the reasons I stopped was that it's a job. It's a great job. But when your job starts losing you money, you need to rethink your job. Mark, you were were making some great points about turnaround time. You're absolutely right. I was putting my thoughts together for this call and I was working out some pros and cons. And that's definitely one of the cons is the turnaround time. A couple things that I would note, Lonely Planet has some great online resources. They follow up and and basically list a lot of their things that you might find in the book online and keep that very up to date in the meantime. Um, And second, One thing that my dad's guidebook line does that hardly any other guidebook line does as well is post their published date on the cover. That's one tool that you can use to visually identify in, you know, uh, along all the books that are available for your region or your, your destination that you're going to. If it says 2017 on it, that's a pretty ballsy move by the publisher, you know. And so a lot of publishers opt not to post the year because then it won't have that shelf life, you know. So that's another thing to watch for. But you're absolutely right. What I look for are the social media presences, the websites and the online resources that other travel publishers might offer along the way. How have the habits of younger travelers and of all of the changes in media that have happened in the last, you know, 15, 20 years, 
how have those things informed your approach to this printed artifact? You talked a little bit about that. Mark talked about some other things, but I'm wondering, do you actually think about the structuring of the content? Do you actually think about the writing? Do you actually think about phrasing things in, in ways that actually acknowledge what people's habits are these days, what travelers' habits Attention are? Attention spans, mm -hmm. even. Yeah. Know. Yeah. You know, that's the first stop. I mean, we're working with Twitter-sized attention spans here, you know. And so I've got to be sure in as few words as possible communicate exactly the vibe or the feeling or the ambiance of any particular museum or site or venue, whether it's music or restaurants or you name it. That's so important to approach and meet your market with where you're at. Uh, it's very rare for any other uh, company to be able to change the, the, the culture of the market. For me, I'm just trying to meet the travelers, the audience, where they're at. And so what I've realized is travel has definitely changed. People are using technology along the road. They're expecting more for less. They're visiting cities in three to four day visits and then hopping on another budget flight onto the next place. My dad grew up traveling um, on Euro passes. Nobody uses those anymore because they're not a good value and you can save a lot of time just jumping from one city to the next. Of course, there are some great train options out there. However, I find that Today's budget traveler, the country that they're visiting, the importance of that has really fallen away. And they're really visiting Dublin, Edinburgh, Madrid over Ireland, Scotland and Spain. Of course, those are secondary things. Obviously, you can't ignore the fact you're in Spain when you're in Madrid, but you're really visiting the city and not necessarily taking those side trips. So to answer your question, I've really crafted my own guidebook around three day visits to each of these different cities with just a handful of museums, restaurants, accommodation tours and nightlife to really pack out three days but not all that much more because i know that's the attention span we're working with here but also remember i have to say one of the reasons guidebooks have gotten more succinct is economic not only do you have to print fewer pages but translation costs are cheaper everyone is looking to translate those guidebooks into other languages because that's free money the more words there are to translate the more expensive it is so the reason this sort of eating disorder has hit guidebooks and they've gotten thinner and thinner is also because it's part of the economics and a way to make more money by cheaply translating them into Italian or Spanish. And I always, I have a pile of my guidebooks in random languages, which always make me chuckle. I wish I could read them. <laughs> do you, Andy, do you, um, did you do an electronic version of your book? Yes, it's available on uh, on all electronic formats that you can download. And I think it's a fraction of the price. I don't know. The cover price here is, let me check. 20 oh. bucks, 19.99, and uh, and so I think the the electronic version is 10 bucks or so. Do you give any thought to having an accelerated update cycle for the electronic versions, or is that just not something you're interested in? Wouldn't it be fun to create like a Pokemon app for travel? You know, like for, forget the Pokemon things, the, the little monsters on the street corners. But, but you know, to be able to hold up your phone and in front of, for example, I'm here in Budapest in front of St. Stephen's Church to be able to hold it up and have, you know, just like uh, uh, what's that, you know, any one of those futuristic movies, Matrix or the the – Minority, minority report, report. Yeah. Um, you know, to have that information just feed out of there. That'd be so sweet. Yes, but it hey, would. <laughs> um, there are any listeners who are top grade, you know, programmers, app developers. I, you can find my contact information in the show notes. I'm sure. We have a couple of those around <laughs> the, here. The budget just isn't quite there yet. But hey, I, um, I was listening to your guys' podcast about uh, 2017 trends. And I mean, I'm sure that it's going to be so fascinating to see where travel goes over the next decade here. 
Right. So I, when I was preparing for this, I was kind of like looking at all of the headlines we had about. Meredith, like, you're ruining the fiction that we don't prepare for so, this. So sorry. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with preparing, Brad. Don't try and be cool. Don't try and be cool. No. It's okay so to do was, your homework. I was just kind of like looking to see what, because we kind of are this weird mix of our magazine has a lot of intel and itineraries, which make it a sort of guidebook. And then our website also has a lot of destination guides. But we have these three stories that I thought were offshoots of like technology that's changing how this works. And one of them was Google Maps. One of them was Trip Scout, which is a like an audio walking tour app. And then Instagram, which I use personally to plan parts, but not all of my travel. Well, I mean, first of all, you buried the lead. Like we all work for, I mean, we work for a website, but we work for a magazine. Right. And so we face a different version of Mm -hmm. this set of complications and questions. But I I mean, I think the Instagram question is is a great one in the sense that we know that about 70% of the content on Instagram is travel related in one way or another. It might be food, it might be places, it might be, you know, people on trips, whatever. But we also know that Instagram itself has literally changed the way word spreads about new places. So with respect to the updating cycle of something like a guidebook or even a website, right, it's difficult to keep pace with Instagram itself because the distribution, the sourcing is something we can never match. It's a billion people all around the world. And it's instant. Uh, and it's the Insta part is critical. And <laughs> yeah. so a restaurant, that mm-hmm. this question that you had or the, the, the scenario you were describing, Seb, about a restaurant that, you know, is a discovery now. And, you know, that timeline has gone from two years to, to, two, two, weeks. to two weeks. To two weeks. Yeah. Right? Yeah. In New York it has. Yeah. yeah in big mm-hmm. markets. And I think, you know, that is a challenge for everyone. And I guess what do we think about of things that are not Instagram. Like, how do we think about that? Well, I, like, I feel like it's kind of what you were hinting at, Meredith, was like when you were talking about Instagram, you were saying, you know, you partially use it or you use it for part of your trip. So that's yeah. like, that's not your one-stop shop, like clearly. No, because the, I would I would actually have no fun if I only planned my trip based on Instagram. I would be like, ooh, look, cool photos. Maybe this mm-hmm. place has a drink that like doesn't taste like pure sugar. Great. <laughs> But maybe it does, and maybe it's just like, you know. But it was I take, pretty. Right, but yeah. I, like, take my gram at, like, the one, yeah. you know, spot um, in Italy where I can, like, show all my friends, like, hey, look, where I am. And then from there on, I, like, actually do a trip that I actually want to enjoy. But, like, the I think future... It's, it- it's fascinating to see how Instagram culture has seeped into modern day travel and what it's really changed, I think, in a lot of ways is how it's kind of this checklist um, style of tourism uh, and and it's at risk of, of uh, you know, making people lose those personal connections. People are so committed and, and so obsessed with the fact like, oh my gosh, I saw this beautiful picture. I got to go all the way to Greece to get that same picture. And, you know, it's great for inspiration but you got to keep it in balance with all your other research, all your other ways of planning trips. So it's again, it's great to get inspiration, but it's so important to stay away from that sort of um, frantic, desperate bucket list, sort of just check it off the list, been there, done that approach. And, and I feel like the future of the guidebook for the 21st century is going to be 
in whoever can kind of create that entire ecosystem, right? Who can show you the Instagram-worthy picture that you're like, ooh, this looks interesting. Show me more based on this. You know, it's kind of like what Google's trying to do, right? With Google Trips. <laughs> Have any of you guys used Google Trips? I've played around with it. I've never used it on an on actual, an actual trip. trip. Nope. No. I know you have. Cause, I have. Yeah. I just did. Um, when I've done it like twice Japan? Now. When I was in Japan, I did it for a previous trip. I can't remember which one. And okay, so then next question. Have any of you guys used electronic versions of the... Because you said, Meredith, you have a Kindle. Yes. So when I went to Italy, I used an electronic version of my like Lonely Planet guidebook um, and then I had like a billion screenshots on my phone of traveler stuff and like New York Times stuff and, and I would just sit mostly Condé Nast Traveler mostly stuff mostly Condé right? stuff yeah. of course um, <laughs> no but I would sit on my phone every morning and be like okay what am I going to do today as I leave my Airbnb okay these seem feasible as I like you know poke through my phone and have my guidebook and the nice thing was you know when I pulled out my guidebook on my Kindle and I was traveling alone at the time like no one gave me a second look because I didn't have an actual guidebook. But I will say not being able to write in it was like the most frustrating thing. I would get so mad and I'm not good at, I would just, you know, keep notes on my phone. But it was like the first time I had ever traveled without an actual physical journal of any sort. And it was very frustrating. Well, but like the thing is, I think what I was trying to get at is that the one place where the guidebook falls up short, and I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing is when you're just kind of out exploring in a city, you wind up in front of some bar or some restaurant, and you're like, hmm, should I go in there? Should I check it out? And it's not in your guidebook, so you're like, oh, maybe not. I mean, what you're going to do is you're going to Google it and look for Yelp or whatever the equivalent of Yelp is in the country that you're in to see what the reviews are. But really, what you should really do is just fucking go inside <laughs> and like see what it's like, because it might be amazing. No, but I also think you should just like be more observant. If there are lots of people yes. in there that look like locals, then yeah. like right. go in. Pick up on real human cues, <laughs> right? Like, well, you, and you begin uh, if you're a good traveler, you can begin to pick out those those cues. Ex- exactly right. You can look for okay. Are there people inside? That's that's step one. Are those people tourists or right. are they locals? That's step two. And you know, pop in and understand. Okay, is it is it overly bright? Again, menus in ten different languages. That's how you begin to figure <laughs> out is this a good place or not. I walked past six restaurants on my way to a run this evening around the city park here in Budapest, and these restaurants were full, but they are ridiculously touristy. And every single person in the chair was either a Hungarian just throwing away money because it's the posh thing to do or a tourist that doesn't know any better. And if you know those visual cues, you can get off that beaten path and find those those more hidden spots. I think always the biggest cue for me is when someone, because I am blonde, blue-eyed American, is when someone walks up to me with an English menu when I walk in the door. That's when I'm like, no, I'm good. No, thanks. thanks. I'm going to leave If a restaurant now. needs a recruiter outside, <laughs> right. that's, you know, that, that means they're subsidizing something. And there. that I agree with but, that in New York, too. It's yeah. not just outside of the country. But we are also, I think we're forgetting, we're focusing on one half of the guidebook. So when I used to work on the Rough Guides, there were two halves to the book. Three. Three, three, three thirds. Three halves. <laughs> there are three halves. Really big book. Um, there were the context and the history, which were a great thing, which is like the history of Miami, the history of San Francisco, which you don't get from Instagram. And I like that. I like that sense of like, why is San Francisco such a gold rushy town where everyone thinks they can make a million overnight from the dot com? Oh, it started that way with the gold rush. Also, the listings, which are the museums, 
the sites, all of those things which don't change. Instagram doesn't have the explanation of that random monument and why it's there because of a fire. So it's almost like you buy a guidebook and it will be more perennial for the things, Andy, like your dad was focusing on, those perennial things. It can be super useful for that. And it's more reliable than Wikipedia. Sure, you can pull up the Wikipedia page of that sculpture, but anyone can edit that. A guidebook has, if it's from a reputable producer, been checked and researched thoroughly. So it's almost like we're obsessed with the listings, which I think is the, the sort of guidebooks kind of like the soft underbelly. But what it is undeniably great for are those other two things. Well, and I think the other thing too about your Wikipedia point, Mark, is that the nice thing about guidebooks or websites uh, <laughs> is that, is that <laughs> travel <laughs> websites, tra- travel websites, is that they are written with a traveler in mind from the perspective of a traveler. And I think Wikipedia is not. You know, Wikipedia is trying to be encyclopedic, literally. And Instagram is definitely not. No, and I, and, but, but we know, and I think we would all attest to the fact that as travelers and as travel writers, we know that there's kind of like a sufficiency of information and a structure of information that travelers typically care about and what you get from a guidebook. And I'd say this, I was going to describe this moment because it was like a paralyzing moment for me. But um, when I was in Tokyo and in Kyoto, I did use a guidebook in both places. And I think what I found about it is exactly what you're describing, Mark, which is I got that kind of background information on all of the points of interest that were covered and I got exactly the right amount and I got exactly the the sort of coverage that I was looking for, which is I didn't have a novel in front of me. I didn't have an encyclopedia, you know, entry in front of me. I had a very pointed, well-constructed, well-written version of the things that gave me the background that I needed, the the sort of level of interest that I was able to muster, you know, while I was in in the place. And that I think is difficult to replicate. I think the the moment I was going to describe is related to the Kindle is related to all of these things because I was using the Lonely Planet guide for Tokyo and every morning we would get up, my wife and I, and try to plan the day. We had our kid with us, so that was difficult. But I had my iPad and I had the Kindle version of the Lonely Planet Guide to Tokyo. And what I would do is go through and grab screenshots of the things that were written in the Lonely Planet Guide, cut and paste them, talk about scrapbooking, into <laughs> an app on my iPad that is like a an app that you can write on. I have the Apple Pencil, mm-hmm. whatever. And you can paste them in. And then I would make notes on top of that. So I was doing all of these things. And then... I left and left my iPad behind. Oh, no. my God. Oh. I had all my day, like, you know, here's today in Tokyo. Oh. Here's all the things we're going to do. But what I thought was interesting about that process was the guidebook definitely had kind of what you're describing, Mark, which is a sort of perfected version of the descriptions because it's not enough for me to just have the list. So it'd be like, here's where we're going to ha- go have lunch. Here are some, you know, buildings because like, there's an architecture. There's a lot of architecture in Tokyo. So it'd be like, here's some buildings we want to check out. And it wasn't enough for me to just have the name and the address. I wanted kind of that little graph about that little paragraph about why I was looking at this building. Who designed mm-hmm. it? You know, when did it get arrested? The stuff that my mom would embarrassingly read to but me. But I also think the weird, the <laughs> weird thing that's always been true about guidebooks is because of space limitations, like 140 characters is exactly how much a lot of these listings have, if not mm-hmm. yeah. so maybe twice hmm. as much. And so it's one of those things that like as surprising as it is that, you know, 
millennials use them. But, but I, I have to say, I, what we haven't asked is any of the listeners and what they use, because I'd love to know, you know, please leave some comments on the Facebook post for this uh, podcast or tweet at us, because I'd love Which to know. Which will go up on Friday. Yay! Thanks, we are we are obviously we're one perspective. We work in this world, so we love guidebooks kind of in that nerdy kind of travel nerdy way. Are we the wrong snapshot? I'd love to hear from people listening. Do you use guidebooks? And if so, how do you use them? Do you use digital versions? Do you use the same guidebook you used at college? You kind of brand loyal. Please tell us because I feel like we do risk. Of course we love guidebooks because they they're just like Nerdvana for us. I mean, I can I can read a guidebook that for a place that I'm never going to go to and still enjoy it, you know? Um, so, yeah, it does. It is Because it is, many of them are very well, you know, they're yeah. well written. They right. hire good writers. You get the and history. Like, I still remember the history of that mosque-turned-cathedral in Córdoba, Spain, because that's when my mother read it to me when I was eight years old, standing yeah. there, and but I still I, fucking remember it. But look, I mean, I think because of the, guidebook. the argument for quality is a good one, and you just described a scenario, Seb, where, you know, you've got the guidebook, and then you kind of go off the grid, and you're looking at the restaurant, and it's not there, and you go to Yelp, and it's like the quality drop-off. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that, I'm not trying to be precious, you know, as a writer or as a, you know, content you know, organization or whatever. But I just do feel like the difference between what you get from the crowdsourced universe, whether it's, you know, Yelp or Foursquare or TripAdvisor or whatever, and what you get from a good guidebook is radical. Like or it's a good, pretty or, or a good huge. local friend. Oh, yeah. But I like also I also would say that I would trust my friends and putting out a call on Facebook or posting an Instagram and having people comment, Oh, I loved this place when I was there. I would trust those people way more than I would trust Yelp. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. because that's just yeah. it's so much information that I can't even process, which is kind of the entire point of a guidebook to like kind of I don't know, sieve out the weird things that you this don't is, actually want to go like, to. This is like this is not the first time I've like plugged this service as a guiding thing that's not exactly necessarily in our brand, but my experiences with couch surfing, for example, retweet have been like transformative travel <laughs> <Hashtag> experiences. <laughs> like, I'm like flailing my arms around. The experience no. I had in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia couch surfing at an Ethiopian's house who took me around and showed me the sites, showed me the music venues, showed me the restaurants mm-hmm. versus what I would have had searching the internet or even with a guidebook, it was drastically different. And yeah. I also, we haven't even touched on Airbnb either. Right. I mean, that's, that's something special too. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. That, that taps into the same kind of Mm-hmm. Here's here's your guide. What it really you know? boils down to is connecting with a local, whether you do that through uh, an accommodation service or just being a ridiculous extrovert, you know, striking <laughs> yeah, up totally. a conversation anywhere. But- and I always talk to travelers, hey, anytime you go somewhere, do a, just a little bit of background on, on the important issues in each of these places. I was just in Paris for the election yesterday or the yeah. primaries, you know, Friday to Saturday to Sunday. It was such an incredible experience to understand what was going on there. Brexit in, in London in the UK, Scotland, and the referendum a couple of years ago. These are all things that all it takes is a couple minutes to to understand, okay, what, what are the different sides? And then, you know, pick a side and just open with something ridiculous and you'll know that you have a, a an exciting conversation waiting for you and then hopefully a friend down on the other end <laughs> but i just like i want to and this is maybe me maybe this is me picking the fight not with seb or with mark but like 
I I want to just challenge this notion of find a local and the the local will lead you to Nirvana because I think about <laughs> That's not what I said. No, but. I just like I, I think spiritual I peace and happiness. <laughs> um, no, but I, I think about the locals even in my own neighborhood and like they don't all know what a good hamburger tastes like. They don't all know what a good meal is. They don't, you know what I'm saying? Like, I just think, look around in New York and, and, and there's a lot of people lining up for stuff I'm not lining up for. But I would mm-hmm. say that someone who is voluntarily opening up their home as an Airbnb, and I'm not talking like opening up their home to you as a family to take over their entire house. I'm talking like opening up a room in their home or opening up their couch to be couch surfed on. Like those people are super excited about having you and are probably super obsessed with their cities and with traveling. So you're automatically going to have something in common with them and they're going to be naturally more inclined to be like tapped in than... And it's it's also more relative, right? It's those people versus the person who's been to this place once and... They're self-identifying for sure. Yeah, but like there's the people who have been to this place once and wrote this, you know, review on TripAdvisor, which a lot of people said was helpful, so it's top rated. (laughs) And you're like, oh, cool, I should go to this place. Then you go to it and you're like... Who sent me to this fucking tourist trap? Yeah. You know? Right. So I love Brad's point about there is, let's not knock, and again, we're defending ourselves here, but let's not knock. Sometimes it's very handy to have a kind of bullshit meter, which the guidebook writer can be, where they're like, you know, I've seen this done in a lot of places. I know you're trying to scam. Whereas they, you can trust them to be like, you know, I do this for a living. I've gone into these hotels. I listened to how rude they were to someone checking someone else in, not how nice they were to me because I got a free room to check out the hotel. I know how to tell, you know, there is I think there is something to be said for trusting a pro. I know there's a great sort of distrust of experts at the moment, but to me, I'm like, I want experts, experts, experts. You know, and I think of Peter John Lindbergh's piece for us a couple of years back about the Brooklynification of the world, which I thought was really great because because this is the kind of thing that Instagram just sort of chases, 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 and I think participates in, which is this pursuit of a particular kind of aesthetic or aesthetic range um, and the application of that to different places all around the world. And I think Peter, as an expert, as a traveler, as somebody who has been all over the world for many years, has been kind of like examining the stuff, was able to step back from that moment and say, you know what, a lot of these places are starting to look exactly the same and it's starting to all feel like Brooklyn and and we've we've there's a different version of a globalized aesthetic that we're starting to see here and it was worth at least calling into the conversation. It was worth at least calling out and saying like let's think about this and let's think about what it means when you say, you know, I'm looking for a local moment. I'm looking for that that you know, what does that really mean? Is that are you really just looking for a hip version of home? displaced into another location I mean, or in my case it's definitely not I that. know so I get, I know I know <laughs> no. and I'm not trying to call that's I not, can I feel the offense in your voice Seb. <laughs> no. I, yeah, I, I want to make clear to our listeners that that's Seb not what cool. I was and referring. I'm not trying to impugn anybody <laughs> right. specifically with that I just think that was a really interesting it's um, a, no it's a great point that people sometimes will see this one little slice of a place and be like oh I got the real local experience because they went to like a farmer's market 
come gallery, you know, <laughs> and everything else. Yeah, it's a it's a great point. You know what authenticity really means and all of that. Another thing to consider as well is the fact that when you're traveling, people really identify with where they're comfortable, not where it's necessarily authentic. You Absolutely. know, those are two different things, and I see that all the time. When I take somebody into the Cobblestone Pub in in Dublin, they don't know how to act in an Irish pub. It's the best pub in town, but because it's not what they were necessarily expecting, um, they they don't know what to do. Same with uh, Polish typical cuisine they, they might look at a plate and it's not you know it doesn't have the frazzle dazzle on it but it's what the poles eat and <laughs> and so that that's not necessarily you, you've got to remember those are two different things and try to 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 set travelers up with the right expectations totally. and then maybe they can do that and kind of come to where you are Seb. Totally. No, and I, I agree. And I think that's exactly what I'm getting at, which is that I think Instagram can sometimes be a tyrannical aesthetic, right? Like I think I think it sort of forces every and this is kind of what you were saying, Mayor, too, which is it prioritizes a certain set of values above other things. It prioritizes photographability. You no, know, it's, it's literally just beauty and like trendiness. Right. Yeah, totally. And trendiness according the, to a certain But again, those bracket. are those are literally two things. <laughs> That's and, all that they have going for them. Well, and I and I think this is really this is what Andy's saying is really true because you do get this sense that people are reacting more to their own thing rather than to the place in which they find themselves or to which they have traveled. And I think that is the danger of Instagram is that they're porting a sort of aesthetic that they're applying to a strange place. It's a different version of what might have been, a you might have had a different name for this back in, you know, 30, 40 years ago. In pursuing good travel, I, I find it boils down to two things. It's like the mechanics of it, the type A organizing of it. But the, the second and just as important part is bringing the right mindset so that so that you can, you know, thrive in those unfamiliar settings. And so I think that's so important. That's one thing that social media can't provide. That's one thing that Wikipedia, Yelp or TripAdvisor can't provide. And hopefully a, uh, a guidebook writer or an expert that you trust can help kind of bridge that gap a little bit. I feel but like I have to say... I have to say, I just have to say, I, we are biased. Can I just, I admit this again. Like, I know, I really want to hear from people listening who think we're just coming from a very, very unobjective viewpoint. Maybe you've got someone from Instagram listening who can tell us why Instagram is better than guidebooks. I, I just know that, you know, all say, we tell us. I will just say that I do have one story of when Instagram did not steer me wrong and it didn't lead to a great Instagram photo, but it led to like a really awesome experience. I was in Ecuador, <laughs> I guess two years ago and went to like the swing at the end of the world, which you right. see all these photos of these people who are like on this swing and it's like going off into the these like crazy mountains. Seen, yeah. It's insane. So my friend and I like hiked for like three hours to the Ecuador rainforest because we couldn't get a cab and ended up getting up to the top and it was completely cloudy and you couldn't see anything. <laughs> so you just looked like you were on a swing. So we were just <laughs> swinging into the abyss. And Instagram moment foiled. <laughs> I know. But honestly, though. Cool like, swing, Meredith. <laughs> right. But it was so much In fun. In upstate New York. Right. To like actually be like on this three hour hike and then like have all these crazy things happen to us where we like couldn't get a cab. And then we were like, okay, we'll just walk it. Fine. It's totally fine. We'll be in our converse and just like walk up this mountain. <laughs> and we had so much fun. And then when we got to the top and it was foggy, we were like, it doesn't even matter. And so, 
you know, it was one of those times when, yes, I like totally did it for the gram. I am self admittedly <laughs> saying that I totally did it for the gram, but the actual experience ended up being way better than the Instagram that I ended up posting, which I did end up posting. Yeah, that's a great story. It sort of brings us back around to a question I, I've been wanting to ask you, Andy, which is, what is the future for this business? You are a young guy, and I'm curious. As I don't to- know, Brad. I just turned 30. Oh, Andy. Andy. I speak for both Mark and myself, and I don't want to loop Mark into this, but you are such a young guy. <laughs> like, um, what, what do you, you know, when you look at the future of this, like the family business, so to speak, your new version of this that you are embarking upon, you released your first guidebook last year. And I'm curious as to kind of like what's next on the docket for you and how do you think about yourself and your, um, enterprise here going into the next five years, the next 10 years. What do you think about that? You know, the best, most incredible and unforgettable experiences I've ever had are all because of those interpersonal connections with people from Bali, from the farms in Bali to the hills outside of Medellin to, you know, a a city dweller in Paris. Anytime that I've made those interpersonal connections, that's what reminds me that travel is so important. So I was reflecting on all the incredible travel experiences I've had in my adult life, but also as a youngster growing up with traveling around with my dad have all been because of interpersonal connections. I mentioned that traveling is so important to break down those cultural barriers. And when you ask me about where I see travel in five, 10, 20 years, Honestly, I have no idea. You know, I'm still learning how to use Snapchat, Twitter, Instagram, all of these things that I couldn't even imagine, you know, a few months or years ago. Ask so I Meredith. Have no idea. <laughs> Anything that is there to facilitate interpersonal connections um, it will always have value in my book and in my, you know, in my opinion. So anything, whatever it is, technology, printed uh, resources, online resources, whatever they are, keep an eye out for, for what helps you interact with the local culture and get out of your comfort zone rather than keep you in it. And anytime you're checking, uh, you know, how many likes you've had on a recent Instagram or Facebook picture, you know, you got to recalibrate why you're traveling in the first place. So always keep that in mind. And Bridge those cultural gaps while you're on the road rather than um, keep your face on a screen. Completely agree. And Mark, I want to ask you a similar question. You work with us on the website. You do video for us. You do Facebook Lives for us. You know, you are a digital media person, but you also have a background that is deep and rich with the printed word. And I'm wondering how you see this business, this process evolving. Well, I stopped doing guidebooks for a simple reason. They weren't profitable. And if they're not profitable, that tells you one of the problems. By the mid-2000s, the market was shrinking and most major guidebook manufacturers no longer produce the encyclopedia of titles they used to produce in the 90s. And that tells you something. Rough Guides has cut back and cut back and slowed the update cycle, which is a death spiral of its own. 
What do I think is going to happen? I think guidebooks will always exist, but exactly as Andy said, someone brilliant will combine a walking tour, an augmented reality, an in-depth something for major cities, and it will become category killing. Maybe there won't be one for every city in the world, but for the major tourist hubs like London, New York, Paris, if guidebooks go away, I will eat all the guidebooks I own. <laughs> you I heard it. Like, you heard it. You heard it. We will do actually. Tape. We will it's do a, a Facebook, Facebook Live. Yeah. Exactly. Facebook. That would be the best. Fa- that would rival the watermelon and rubber bands Facebook Live. Oh my God. Mark we have eating to do guidebooks. It. Yeah. Mark eating all of his guidebooks. It could take days. It could take <laughs> exactly. days. I have a lot of guidebooks. I'm talking major, major views, people. Just get some good extra virgin olive oil. And you'll be- <laughs> yeah, exactly. Salt. Salt. It's the key is salt. Um, do we want to go back and Angie? Do you want to go back and answer the oh question that we were talking about yeah. earlier? Do you remember? <laughs> do you remember? I don't I mean, remember. It must be like streaming the Titanic or something. <laughs> I don't know. For me, the guidebook falls in this. The guidebook, not like the guidebook as PDF or the guidebook as Facebook page, like the actual guidebook. When traveling, like that's my nice, crisp, ice cold lager. That's the one I'm going to go back to. That's like my comfort zone. That's going to be like my base. I'm going to go back and I'm going to have that nice cold beer, simple beer that you can find anywhere in the world pretty much. And anything beyond that is going to be like of the moment. I might go try to find some local blog or something to find out about a certain artistic scene or whatever else. And maybe it's a generational thing. Maybe it's because everyone here at least grew up with guidebooks playing a role in their travel lives. So it's the comfort in that, but for the time being, like that's still my, you know, my nice simple cold lager. I think the successful brands in the future are going to be the ones who who figure out how to you know adapt to obviously changing technology trends, needs, and wants of of uh, future generations. I mean, we can't we can't keep dating ourselves. I know Mark is really sensitive to um, you know selling our own product. I get that, but hey, like like he said, let's leave it open to comments. I want to understand myself. What are the pinch points of travel? Where are people having a hard time on the road? And whether it's a book or any other format of delivering information or experiences, whoever it is, the experts need to evolve to meet those needs. Totally. So I think that's a great place to close. So thanks to you, Andy, and to Mark for being off hours, being in kind of crazy time zone land. I know what that's like. I was just in Japan. And uh, and for joining us today, really great to think about this stuff. I think our listeners are going to love it. Listeners, subscribe to the podcast, please. Um, I'm begging you. <laughs> Slightly less desperate, Brad. This is what we've come to. This is what we've come to. This is where we've come to. Begging you to subscribe. Begging, begging, subscribe. I don't even. I can't even tell if you subscribe to the podcast. But please subscribe to the podcast. We are on iTunes. We're on SoundCloud. Um, and please visit us on cntraveler.com where you can find articles about Andy. We, we did an interview with Andy last August when he launched the European Guide, um, which I think is really interesting. And Mark is there every day. He's with us. Um, we are at cntraveler.com, of course. And you can see the work of Meredith and Sebastian there every single day as well. And it's fantastic. We are also at Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube. We are at CN Traveler on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. And please do tweet at us. And we would love, in your tweeting, uh, if you could, let us know 
what guidebooks you use, what you love about them, what you don't like about them, and any other tools that you're using to complement your guidebooks or instead of your guidebooks. You know, we would love to sort of bring that into the conversation because we think about this stuff every day. I'm sure other travelers think about this stuff every day. They're the tools that we build our travels out of. So I think this is really interesting. It's an evolving space, and um, we would love to hear from you and understand what you're doing with this stuff. Send us feedback and review us on iTunes. Let us know there. Meredith, where can the peoples reach you? The peoples can find me on Instagram at oh, hey there, Mayor. Mark? You can find me on Twitter at Mark with a K, J-L-Wood, E-L-L-W-O-O-D. And uh, Andy, where's the best place for people to get in touch with you? It's uh, WSAEurope.com and Andy Steve's Travel on Facebook. So, and the guidebook is Andy Steve's Europe, City Hopping on a Budget. Thank you so much, guys, for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure and, and inspiring to speak with each of you. It's been a great time. Thanks, Andy. Seb? Likewise. At Seb Modak on all the things. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm at Brad Rick on all the things. Thanks, everybody. Have a great weekend. 